Chapter Nine, Part Three of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria, by Giles Lytton Strachey, Chapter Nine, Part Three. Four. The final years were years of apotheosis. In the dazzled imagination of her subjects, Victoria soared aloft toward the regions of divinity through a nimbus of purest glory. Criticism fell dumb. Deficiencies, which twenty years earlier would have been universally admitted, were now as universally ignored. That the nation's idol was a very incomplete representative of the nation was a circumstance that was hardly noticed, and yet it was conspicuously true. For the vast changes which, out of the England of 1837, had produced the England of 1897, seemed scarcely to have touched the Queen. The immense industrial development of the period, the significance of which had been so thoroughly understood by Albert, meant little indeed to Victoria. The amazing scientific movement, which Albert had appreciated no less, left Victoria perfectly cold. Her conception of the universe, and of man's place in it, and of the stupendous problems of nature and philosophy, remained throughout her life entirely unchanged. Her religion was the religion which she had learnt from the Baroness Lehzen and the Duchess of Kent. Here, too, it might have been supposed that Albert's views might have influenced her. For Albert, in matters of religion, was advanced. Disbelieving altogether in evil spirits, he had had his doubts about the miracle of the Gadarene swine. Stockmar, even, had thrown out in a remarkable memorandum on the education of the Prince of Wales the suggestion that while the child must unquestionably be brought up in the creed of the Church of England, it might nevertheless be in accordance with the spirit of the times to exclude from his religious training the inculcation of a belief in the supernatural doctrines of Christianity. This, however, would have been going too far, and all the royal children were brought up in complete orthodoxy. Anything else would have grieved Victoria, though her own conceptions of the orthodox were not very precise. But her nature, in which imagination and subtlety held so small a place, made her instinctively recoil from the intricate ecstasies of high Anglicanism, and she seemed to feel most at home in the simple faith of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. This was what might have been expected, for Leitzen was the daughter of a Lutheran pastor, and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians have much in common. For many years Dr. Norman MacLeod, an innocent Scotch minister, was her principal spiritual adviser, and when he was taken from her, she drew much comfort from quiet chats about life and death with the cottagers at Balmoral. Her piety, absolutely genuine, found what it wanted in the sober exhortations of old John Grant and the devout saws of Mrs. P. Farquharson. They possessed the qualities which, as a child of fourteen, she had so sincerely admired in the Bishop of Chester's exposition of the Gospel of St. Matthew. They were 
just plain and comprehensible and full of truth and good feeling. The Queen, who gave her name to the age of Mill and of Darwin, never got any further than that. From the social movements of her time, Victoria was equally remote. Towards the smallest, no less than towards the greatest changes, she remained inflexible. During her youth and middle age, smoking had been forbidden in polite society, and so long as she lived she would not withdraw her anathema against it. Kings might protest. Bishops and ambassadors invited to Windsor might be reduced in the privacy of their bedrooms to lie full length upon the floor and smoke up the chimney. The interdict continued. It might have been supposed that a female sovereign would have lent her countenance to one of the most vital of all the reforms to which her epoch gave birth, the emancipation of women, but on the contrary, the mere mention of such a proposal sent the blood rushing to her head. In 1870, her eye having fallen on the report of a meeting in favor of women's suffrage, she wrote to Mr. Martin in royal rage. The Queen is most anxious to enlist everyone who can speak or write to join in checking this mad, wicked folly of woman's rights, with all its attendant horrors, on which her poor feeble sex is bent, forgetting every sense of womanly feeling and propriety. Lady hmm, ought to get a good whipping. It is a subject which makes the Queen so furious that she cannot contain herself. God created men and women different, then let them remain each in their own position. Tennyson has some beautiful lines on the difference of men and women in The Princess. Woman would become the most hateful, heartless, and disgusting of human beings were she allowed to unsex herself and where would be the protection which man was intended to give the weaker sex? The Queen is sure that Mrs. Martin agrees with her. The argument was irrefutable. Mrs. Martin agreed, and yet the canker spread. In another direction, Victoria's comprehension of the spirit of her age has been constantly asserted. It was for long the custom for courtly historians and polite politicians to compliment the Queen upon the correctness of her attitude toward the Constitution. But such praises seem hardly to be justified by the facts. In her later years, Victoria more than once alluded with regret to her conduct during the bedchamber crisis, and let it be understood that she had grown wiser since. Yet in truth it is difficult to trace any fundamental change either in her theory or in her practice in constitutional matters throughout her life. The same despotic and personal spirit which led her to break off the negotiations with Peel is equally visible in her animosity towards Palmerston, in her threats of abdication to Disraeli, and in her desire to prosecute the Duke of Westminster for attending a meeting upon Bulgarian atrocities. The complex and delicate principles of the Constitution cannot be said to have come within the compass of her mental faculties, and in the actual developments which it underwent during her reign, she played a passive part. From 1840 to 1861, the power of the Crown steadily increased in England, 
from 1861 to 1901, it steadily declined. The first process was due to the influence of the Prince Consort, the second to that of a series of great ministers. During the first, Victoria was, in effect, a mere accessory. During the second, the threads of power which Albert had so laboriously collected inevitably fell from her hands into the vigorous grasp of Mr. Gladstone, Lord Beaconsfield, and Lord Salisbury. Perhaps, absorbed as she was in routine, and difficult as she found it to distinguish at all clearly between the trivial and the essential, she was only dimly aware of what was happening. Yet at the end of her reign, the crown was weaker than at any other time in English history. Paradoxically enough, Victoria received the highest eulogiums for assenting to a political evolution which, had she completely realized its import, would have filled her with supreme displeasure. Nevertheless, it must not be supposed that she was a second George the Third. Her desire to impose her will, vehement as it was, and unlimited by any principle, was yet checked by a certain shrewdness. She might oppose her ministers with extraordinary violence, she might remain utterly impervious to arguments and supplications, the pertinacity of her resolution might seem to be unconquerable, but at the very last moment of all, her obstinacy would give way. Her innate respect and capacity for business, and perhaps, too, the memory of Albert's scrupulous avoidance of extreme courses, prevented her from ever entering an impasse. By instinct she understood when the facts were too much for her, and to them she invariably yielded. After all, what else could she do? But if in all these ways the Queen and her epoch were profoundly separated, the points of contact between them also were not few. Victoria understood very well the meaning and the attractions of power and property, and in such learning the English nation, too, had grown to be more and more proficient. During the last fifteen years of the reign, for the short liberal administration of 1892 was a mere interlude, imperialism was the dominant creed of the country. It was Victoria's as well. In this direction, if in no other, she had allowed her mind to develop. Under Disraeli's tutelage, the British dominions over the seas had come to mean much more to her than ever before, and in particular she had grown enamoured of the East. The thought of India fascinated her. She set to and learnt a little Hindustani. She engaged some Indian servants, who became her inseparable attendants, and one of whom, Munshi Abdul Karim, eventually almost succeeded to the position which had once been John Brown's. At the same time, the imperialist temper of the nation invested her office with a new significance exactly harmonizing with her own inmost proclivities. The English polity was in the main a common-sense structure, but there was always a corner in it where common sense could not enter where somehow or other the ordinary measurements were not applicable and the ordinary rules did not apply. So our ancestors had laid it down, giving scope in their wisdom to that mystical element which, as it seems, can never quite be eradicated from the affairs of men. Naturally, it was in the crown 
that the mysticism of the English polity was concentrated, the crown, with its venerable antiquity, its sacred associations, its imposing spectacular array. But for nearly two centuries common sense had been predominant in the great building, and the little unexplored, inexplicable corner had attracted small attention. Then, with the rise of imperialism, there was a change, for imperialism is a faith as well as a business. As it grew, the mysticism in English public life grew with it, and simultaneously a new importance began to attach to the crown. The need for a symbol, a symbol of England's might, of England's worth, of England's extraordinary and mysterious destiny, became felt more urgently than ever before. The crown was that symbol, and the crown rested upon the head of Victoria. Thus it happened that while by the end of the reign the power of the sovereign had appreciably diminished, the prestige of the sovereign had enormously grown. Yet this prestige was not merely the outcome of public changes, it was an intensely personal matter too. Victoria was the Queen of England, the Empress of India, the quintessential pivot round which the whole magnificent machine was revolving. But how much more besides? For one thing, she was of a great age, an almost indispensable qualification for popularity in England. She had given proof of one of the most admired characteristics of the race, persistent vitality. She had reigned for sixty years, and she was not out. And then she was a character. The outlines of her nature were firmly drawn, and even through the mists which envelop royalty clearly visible. In the popular imagination, her familiar figure filled, with satisfying ease, a distinct and memorable place. It was, besides, the kind of figure which naturally called forth the admiring sympathy of the great majority of the nation. Goodness they prized above every other human quality, and Victoria, who had said that she would be good at the age of twelve, had kept her word. Duty conscience, morality, yes, in the light of those high beacons the Queen had always lived. She had passed her days in work and not in pleasure, in public responsibilities and family cares. The standard of solid virtue which had been set up so long ago amid the domestic happiness of Osborne had never been lowered for an instant. For more than half a century no divorced lady had approached the precincts of the court. Victoria, indeed, in her enthusiasm for wifely fidelity, had laid down a still stricter ordinance. She frowned severely upon any widow who married again. Considering that she herself was the offspring of a widow's second marriage, this prohibition might be regarded as an eccentricity, but no doubt it was an eccentricity on the right side. The middle classes, firm in the triple brass of their respectability, rejoiced with a special joy over the most respectable of queens. They almost claimed her, indeed, as one of themselves. But this would have been an exaggeration. For, though many of her characteristics were most often found among the middle classes in other respects, in her manners, for instance, Victoria was decidedly aristocratic and in one important particular she was neither aristocratic nor middle class. 
her attitude toward herself was simply regal. Such qualities were obvious and important, but in the impact of a personality it is something deeper, something fundamental and common to all its qualities that really tells. In Victoria it is easy to discern the nature of this underlying element. It was a peculiar sincerity. Her truthfulness, her single-mindedness, the vividness of her emotions and her unrestrained expression of them were the varied forms which this central characteristic assumed. It was her sincerity which gave her at once her impressiveness, her charm, and her absurdity. She moved through life with the imposing certitude of one to whom concealment was impossible, either towards her surroundings or towards herself. There she was, all of her, the Queen of England, complete and obvious. The world might take her or leave her, she had nothing more to show or to explain or to modify, and with her peerless carriage she swept along her path. And not only was concealment out of the question, reticence, reserve, even dignity itself, as it sometimes seemed, might be very well dispensed with. As Lady Littleton said, There is a transparency in her truth that is very striking, not a shade of exaggeration in describing feelings or facts, like very few other people I ever knew. Many may be as true, but I think it goes often along with some reserve. She talks all out, just as it is, no more and no less. She talked all out, and she wrote all out, too. Her letters in the surprising jet of their expression remind one of a turned-on tap. What is within pours forth in an immediate spontaneous rush. Her utterly unliterary style has at least the merit of being a vehicle exactly suited to her thoughts and feelings, and even the platitude of her phraseology carries with it a curiously personal flavor. Undoubtedly it was through her writings that she touched the heart of the public. Not only in her highland journals, where the mild chronicle of her private proceedings was laid bare without a trace either of affectation or of embarrassment, but also in those remarkable messages to the nation which from time to time she published in the newspapers, her people found her very close to them indeed. They felt instinctively Victoria's irresistible sincerity, and they responded, and in truth it was an endearing trait. The personality and the position, too, the wonderful combination of them, that, perhaps, was what was finally fascinating in the case. The little old lady with her white hair and her plain morning clothes, in her wheeled chair or her donkey carriage, one saw her so, and then, close behind, with their immediate suggestion of singularity, of mystery and of power, the Indian servants. That was the familiar vision, and it was admirable. But at chosen moments it was right that the widow of Windsor should step forth apparent queen. The last and the most glorious of such occasions was the Jubilee of 1897. Then, as the splendid procession passed along, escorting Victoria through the thronged, re-echoing streets of London, 
on her progress of thanksgiving to St. Paul's Cathedral, the greatness of her realm and the adoration of her subjects blazed out together. The tears welled to her eyes, and while the multitude roared round her, "'How kind they are to me! How kind they are!' she repeated over and over again. That night her message flew over the empire. "'From my heart I thank my beloved people. May God bless them!' The long journey was nearly done. But the traveller who had come so far and through such strange experiences moved on with the old unfaltering step. The girl, the wife, the aged woman were the same. Vitality, conscientiousness, pride, and simplicity were hers to the latest hour. End of chapter 9, part 3